If you have your Bibles, open with me to the book of Haggai. If you're not super familiar with your Bibles or with the Old Testament, the book of Haggai can be found the books between the books of Zephaniah and Zechariah. Everybody knows those, right? Or, if you're using a pew Bible in front of you, you can find it on page 791 of your pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible of your own, you're more than welcome to take that Bible home with you. Some texts in the Bible are really hard to understand. If the Bible were a book that we could easily understand, it would be less than us, but it's not. The Bible is God's Word, and so some of it can be really difficult at times. You think about the slaughter of the Amalekites. Maybe you haven't thought about that. I hope I haven't introduced a doubt into your mind. Maybe you come to a text like the unpardonable sin, and you're not really sure what to make of it. Maybe you resolve to read through the Bible in a year and you come to the book of Leviticus and you feel like, I can't understand any of this, or the second half of Exodus. Maybe you come to Romans 9 and you read, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. You kind of don't really know what's going on there. Thankfully, the text that we're going to be in this morning is actually pretty straightforward. It's a pretty easy text to understand. If you're not super biblically literate, you don't have to worry this morning. You don't need to be a Bible scholar to make sense of this. The text this morning only requires a little bit of history in order to kind of understand the context. And then after that, you should be good to go. Now, we did that history last week. But since there's a number of people here this week who weren't here last week, let's just do a quick review. The book of Haggai is a prophecy recorded in the Bible given to God's people after they had returned from exile. God judged his people because of their disobedience, and he sent them into exile in a foreign land for 70 years. But he loved them, and he was kind to them, and he was gracious to them, and he brought them back into the promised land. And things seemed to be going very well when they got into the promised land. They got to work rebuilding the wall around the city. They got to work relaying the foundation of the temple. Things just seemed to be going great, although there were some hiccups along the way. But by the time we get to the book of Haggai, the construction on the temple had all but stopped. Twenty years after the people had returned to the land, the temple was still unfinished. Last week we said that this wasn't such a big deal because, you know, hey, start what you finish. No, it wasn't because the construction project wasn't done. It was because at this point in time in redemptive history, the temple is where God's spirit dwelled with God's people. It was where God was most obviously visible and present with his people. And so it seems like the Israelites had sort of forgotten about God. Maybe they didn't forget about him. Maybe they just thought that they could get along without him. They cared more about their houses than the house of God and the presence of God among them. We saw also that last week God called on the Israelites to consider their ways. He said, you guys are not living right. Your priorities are out of order. So I'm calling on you to examine your lives. Consider your ways. Well, that was one point out of a four-point sermon. The last three points are going to be preached this morning. 
The rest of the text this morning is going to be coming through these three points. Point number one, consider the consequences of your ways. So last week, God said, hey, Israel, you need to consider your ways. This week, God is saying, okay, in light of your ways, what are the consequences? Number two, God calls on his people to repent of their ways. And then number three, God calls on his people to consider the fruit of repentance. Let's read the text together and then we'll dive in. Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is ever warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and rebuild the house that I might take pleasure in it and that I might be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills and on the grain and the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would be with us this morning as we consider our ways, as we consider the fruit of our ways, as we consider areas in our lives where we may need to repent of our ways, and as we are encouraged to consider the fruit of a repentant life. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So if last week we talked about God calling the Israelites to examine the sin in their lives, today we're going to see how God called on them to examine the fruit of their ways. If you're not a Christian or if you haven't spent much time in churches learning Christianese, when we talk about the fruit of something, what we mean is kind of the result of something or even the evidence of something. Here in the book of Haggai, we see that the way that the people are living is apparently bearing bad fruit in their lives. 
And the way that Haggai describes it is that apparently God was the one behind this bad fruit. God was the one who was bringing about these negative consequences in their lives. God communicates to his people in two different ways in this chapter. He communicates to his people through prophets, and he communicates to his people through providence. The first one here, prophet, it's pretty easy to understand. You can go and you can see it in verses 1 and verse 2. After talking about the year of Darius the king in the sixth month on the first day, it's like, oh, we get it, okay. The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. So the word of the Lord comes through a man, and that's really all a prophet is. A prophet is somebody who communicates God's word to God's people. Not that complicated. And here we see that Haggai is the one that God has chosen to communicate to his people. But he also speaks to them through providence. Providence is a word that I'm sure we've all heard several times, but maybe we don't understand exactly what it means. Let me help you with that. Here's a good, easy way to understand providence. Providence is simply the invisible hand of God. It's the invisible hand of God. So, the clouds that move into their place, and you think that you know, the laws of nature have just moved those clouds to where they are, Providence says that, yes, the laws of nature were active in moving those clouds, but so was the hand of God. Providence is when you look back on your life and you see some poor decision that you very nearly made, but for whatever reason made a different decision. And you say, I don't know what it was or who it was. It felt like someone or something compelled me to make a different decision. My life would have looked completely different. Well, that's providence. Providence is the suffering that seems to be coincidental or accidental in your life, but is actually wrought by the hand of God himself for your good and for his glory. Providence is the invisible hand of God in our lives. And in verses 6 and in verse 9 and in verse 11, we read about God's providential hand. Go to verse 6. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is ever warm. And he who earns his wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Verse 9, you looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Verse 11, and I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills and on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. The laws of nature are very much alive and active in these things that are taking place here. But God's hand is superintending these events, even if his hand isn't obvious and visible to everyone. It seems like here in the book of Haggai, the Lord is affecting the harvest of the people. He's wreaking economic chaos in the land. He's sending natural disasters on them. Well, why? Why is he doing that? God even asks that question himself rhetorically in verse 9. After he describes everything that he's doing, he says, why? Why did I blow it away? Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Well, apparently the people of God have gotten to the point where they've stopped caring about God. They've become disinterested in God. They're not concerned with God's presence. And so God sends these things into their lives to try to communicate with them. 
what these Israelites might have thought of as something like misfortune or bad luck was actually the providential hand of God moving in their lives to try and communicate with them, to get them to snap out of it, to wake from their spiritual slumber. What we learn here is that God is cursing His people in order to communicate with them. As Christians, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you should know that we Christians don't believe in things like luck. We don't believe in coincidence. I'm not that guy who anyone says, you know, anytime someone says, good luck out there, I'm going to be like, I'm a Christian. You can keep it, right? But I, I, I do wish as Christians we would stop using that kind of language because we don't believe in it. We don't believe in coincidence. We don't believe in accidents. A sparrow does not fall from the sky apart from the will of God. That's what Jesus says. Therefore, we know that some of our circumstances... None of our circumstances are neutral. Clouds don't move. Houses don't collapse. Babies aren't born. And crops do not die apart from the will of God. Sometimes God providentially moves his hand and we thrive. We prosper. Sometimes God providentially moves his hand and we suffer. There are three different kinds of suffering in this world. Three different kinds. One is innocent suffering. A good example of that would be, you know, a Christian being martyred. Innocent suffering. Then you have deserved suffering. When you spank your kid because they lied to you. You know, you lied, you broke the rules, you get the spanking. Deserved suffering. And it it is suffering. Then you have righteous suffering. Jesus, the righteous Lamb of God, suffering and dying on the cross. As Christians, we believe that sometimes we as God's people, we do suffer innocently. We suffer and we haven't really done anything to bring that suffering about in our lives. But sometimes, when we experience suffering, we think that we're suffering innocently, but really the suffering is God's providential hand moving in our lives, trying to communicate something to us. Sometimes our suffering is God trying to get us to consider our ways. So when was the last time that you stopped and just examined the circumstances of your life and asked yourself, is the suffering that I'm experiencing the consequences of sin in my life? Now this can be dangerous. This can be dangerous. You can take this and run away with it. You can look at your life and say that everything is going really well in my life, therefore God must be pleased with me. You can also look at your life and say, man, everything in my life is going terribly, God must be really displeased with me. Well, that's not really what I think we should take away from this. I'm not trying to get you to correlate your suffering to God's pleasure or displeasure with you on a one-to-one basis. What I am saying is that there may be times where God is using suffering in your life to get you to examine your life, to see if you need to change some things in your life. If you're like me, you've probably gotten to a place in your life where you had to stop and look in the mirror and just ask yourself, man, what is going on? Why is... Why is nothing 
going right in my life? Why, why can't I kind of put the pieces together? If you've been there, if you're there right now, you should know that that's actually a good thing. But it's not meant to be the ultimate thing. That's not the thing that we're shooting for. If you're experiencing that and you begin to ask those kinds of questions, there's another step. You should actually consider your ways. You should examine your life and ask yourself, what about my life might be leading my life to look like this? Could it be that my life is falling apart or that I'm not doing well because I'm not living my life according to God's standards? We like to think that we're victims of society, of our parents, of the system, of God. but sometimes we're the victim of our own sin and stupidity. And our suffering is just the natural consequences of living our lives out of sync with God's will. I recently spoke to a mother who is absolutely heartbroken. Her daughter has grown up and walked away from the faith. And this this mother was very faithful to raise her daughter up in the ways of the Lord. And she has grown up and walked away. And ever since she's walked away from the Lord, she has suffered physically, she's suffered emotionally, and she's suffered financially. And I don't think it's wrong for her mother to have the instinct that stops her daughter to say, maybe the Lord's trying to tell you something. Maybe the Lord is trying to call you back home. He's trying to show you that you're trying to live your life apart from Him and it's not going well. Consider your ways. Consider the fruit of your ways. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, man, this is great. This doesn't apply to me. My life's fantastic. You know, my house is paid off. My business is thriving. My 401k is full. My looks are holding up well with age. But maybe you're still miserable inside. Maybe from the outside looking in, everything's going great, but there's still a hole. There's still a gap kind of can't find that ultimate pleasure, that ultimate fulfillment. Maybe you try to find it in drunken binges or the next high. Maybe you try to find it in the next man or woman who seems to be interested in you. Maybe you try to find value and purpose and worth by pouring yourself out in your business or in your family or your health. But you probably aren't finding ultimate fulfillment in those things either if I had to guess. I want to tell you, friend, that the reason why you feel that way is because God has not designed you to find ultimate fulfillment outside of Him. If you don't have peace, if you don't have fulfillment, if you don't have ultimate joy, it's because you're trying to find it outside of Jesus Christ. And that's just not possible. You may find it for a moment, But it's like holding sand. It's just here and it's gone in the next second. When we desire good things apart from God, we will always find ourselves lacking ultimate joy and satisfaction. But brothers and sisters, God is so kind to us. He is so kind to us. Even here in the book of Haggai, you see that God hasn't brought these things upon His people to punish them. Although they certainly deserve it. Rather, He's brought these things on His people to wake them up from their slumber. You see that He hasn't abandoned them completely. Go back to verse 6 again. Verse 6, 
You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Now, that's pretty bad news, but what you can see is that the people do have food. They don't have enough to, you know, be full and get fat, but they have food. They don't have enough drink to be constantly satisfied, to never be thirsty, but they do have enough drink to survive. They don't have enough wages to build the biggest, nicest house with the most land, and, you know, but they have wages. They're not super-duper warm in their clothes, but they have clothes. Spirit's moving. God is not entirely against his people here in the book of Haggai. He's not trying to utterly crush and eradicate his people. He's trying to wake them up. Like a parent who calls the police on a rebellious teenager. He doesn't want the teenager, you know, the dad doesn't want the son to go to jail forever, but he does want to wake him up. He wants to get the teenager to examine his life and the fruit of his life and to jar him out of it. In the book of Haggai, we see God provide for his people even in their sin, but notice, he doesn't provide enough to satisfy them ultimately. And that lack of ultimate satisfaction is God trying to lead his people to repentance. And if you're here this morning and you can't find that ultimate satisfaction, no matter how much stuff you have, you should know that that is also God trying to get you to consider your ways and examine your life. Unfortunately for the Israelites, God's bitter hand of providence did not wake them up. They didn't look at their failed crops and their crashing economy and say, oh, maybe God's trying to tell us something. They just thought, oh, you know, this is the way things are. Bad luck. What are you going to do? So the Lord sent the prophet Haggai to communicate his displeasure to his people. But not just to communicate his displeasure, but also to call them to repentance. Which brings us to our second point. Repent of your ways. Look back at verse 8. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I might take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. This is God's call to repentance for His people. But notice the language that God uses here. Notice the language. It's action language. God doesn't say, hey everyone, I want you to feel really, really, really bad. God doesn't say, I want you to go around moping and cover yourselves with sackcloth and ashes. And that's repentance. God doesn't say, I want you to sit around in confession circles with your legs crossed talking about how bad you've been. And there better be tears or else you probably don't mean it. No, God calls them to demonstrate the fact that they are repentant. The fact that they fear Him and they want to do better through the works of their hands, through their deeds. God calls them to action. Go up to the hills, cut the wood down, build the house, get to work. One of the things that we love to say is, hey, love, it's not just a noun. It's a verb, right? It's an action word, right? It's something we got to do. Well, brothers and sisters, the same thing is true of repentance. Repentance is an action word. It's something that we're called to do, not just feel. 
Repentance is not just feeling bad. It's turning away from your sin and turning to God in faith. Look down at verse 12 again. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. What we just read says that the people obeyed the voice of the Lord, but then it says after that that the people feared the Lord. Do you see the connection there? The people feared the Lord, but fear is an emotion. It's, it's, it's something that exists in our heart and in our mind. It's, it's not something that we can all kind of objectively put in the middle of the room and look at. Repentance is the outward expression of the inward reality. It's the action that comes out of the fear of the Lord, that comes out of the remorse of the hearts. And so here in this text, we see that not only did they fear the Lord, but that they obeyed the Lord. The obedience was the outward expression of the inner reality of their hearts. We know this to be true in our own relationships. Think about how many times somebody has said, I'm really sorry, and then just kept on doing the same thing, right? And when they do that, you say, oh, you're not really sorry. If you were sorry, you'd stop stealing money from my purse. Or if you were sorry, you'd really make an effort to be on time. Or if you're sorry, you would be nicer, or whatever it may be. In our own relationships, we know that repentance isn't just words that we say or emotions that we feel. It's, it's action. We should let this truth sink deep into our bones. If we are really broken about sin in our life, we have to turn away from it. If we really do fear the Lord, we have to express it through repentance that's grounded in obedience. If you're convicted about your lack of devotion time with the Lord, do something about it. Look at your schedule. Figure out some way to carve out time to do more Bible reading and prayer. My wife, who didn't know I was going to bring her up this morning, uh, she gets up early with an alarm clock when she doesn't have to. And the reason why she does that is because it's the only time that she can get time to read and to pray and to drink coffee without the kids. She made time for devotion with the Lord when she was struggling to find time to have devotion with the Lord. If you're grieved about your pornography consumption, put a filter on your phone or on your computer or get rid of the internet entirely. Kids, I, like 50 years ago, that's just the way everybody lived. You know? If you're really convicted about the amount of you know, time that you waste on entertainment, get the TV out of your bedroom. Or get rid of your computer or, you know, if you're convicted about the amount of useless time you spend on social media, delete the Twitter and the Facebook and the Instagram and the Vine, everything else. Just delete it all off your phone. If you really are convicted about your lack of love for your fellow church members, make it a point to show up 15 minutes early and to stay 15 minutes afterwards to get to know people. If you really are repentant, if you really do fear the Lord, you have to show it. You can't just say it. And brothers and sisters, if we have the Spirit of God in us, and we do if we belong to Jesus, we actually have the power to do these things. It's one of the things that distinguishes us from the rest of the world. Look at verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, 
the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. So here in verse 14, you see that the people are repentant. They're obedient. They got to work. They heard the voice of the Lord. They responded in obedience. They went up to the hills. They cut down the trees. They brought the wood back down and they got to work. But you see that before they did that, it says that the spirit of the Lord stirred up their hearts. And brothers and sisters, if we belong to Jesus, his spirit lives in us. And we actually have the ability to walk in obedience. It's one of the sweetest promises of the gospel. I remember as a non-Christian, and I lived a pretty crazy life as a non-Christian, I remember trying to do the right thing. And it was impossible. It was impossible. You know, like the longest I ever went without doing drugs was like two months, you know. And that was just with every last ounce of energy and strength and vigor in my body that I could possibly muster up. But as a Christian, it's surprisingly easy. I'm not saying we do it perfectly, and I'm not saying it's always as easy, but it's a completely different thing. We almost feel like we're supercharged, like we have NOS, like, like there's something or someone working in our hearts and in our lives to push us and compel us as we walk in obedience. We cannot obey in our own power. We cannot live with white-knuckled obedience. Do you know what white-knuckled obedience is? You know, where you're squeezing your fists so tight that your knuckles go white? Where we just try as hard as we can to do the right thing? We, we can't live like that. White-knuckled obedience is temporary obedience. Because white-knuckled obedience is what we do when we feel like we need to change, but we don't actually want to change. And that's why it's temporary. It'll never last. You're not strong enough. We always do the things that we want to do. If we want to have any hope of being obedient to God, God has to change the desires of our heart. And the way that he does that is by sending his spirit to live in our hearts. It's one of the sweetest promises of the gospel. Point number three. Consider the fruit of repentance. Consider what will happen if you repent? So the first point was consider your ways. That was from last week. And then after that, it was consider the fruit of your ways. Or, hey, look at the way you're living, and then look at the outcome of that lifestyle, and you judge whether or not it's worth it. Well, we just saw that the Lord is calling his people to repent of their ways. And now God is saying, hey, I want you to consider the fruit of what it will look like for you to repent. This is how you lived, and this is what it looked like for you to live that way. This is what you could do if you repented, and this is what it would look like if you repented of your sinful ways. In this text, we see that when the people fear the Lord and obey the Lord and turn from their sins, three things happen. Three things. God is pleased, God is glorified, and God is present. Look at verse 8 again. We're really hanging out in verse 8. <coughs> Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I might take pleasure in it. That I might take pleasure in it. Pleasure, please, same thing. God is saying that when his people get to work on the building, he's going to be pleased. But he's not going to be pleased because it's like, oh man, thankfully the construction project's back on. He's going to be pleased because his people have heard his voice and they haven't hardened their hearts. They've heard his voice and they've responded in faith-fueled obedience. 
And the text says that when they do that, it will be pleasing to God. Maybe you're here this morning and you've really never even given two seconds of thought to the idea of pleasing God. You've kind of been entirely unconcerned with the idea of pleasing God. Let me just tell you something briefly about what it means to be a Christian. It is uniquely distinct from all the other religions in the world in that we believe that we are utterly incapable of pleasing God. That may sound like bad news. I promise that it's not. What I mean is that we believe that only Jesus has ever fully pleased God. And the good news of the gospel is that we don't spend our whole lives trying to figure out how we can please God, how we can propitiate His wrath, how we can do enough good things to get God to love us and be pleased with us. No, we realize that's pretty impossible. But there is one who did come and live a perfect life and who pleased God. And if we turn away from our sins and trust in Him, God will be pleased with us as we are connected to Jesus. And that is so freeing. I have many Muslim friends and I, I talk to them about their religion and I hear about their five pillars and everything that they feel like they have to do to try to please a holy and righteous God. And even then they say, it still may not be enough. I can't guarantee that I'll go to heaven. I still might very well go to hell. And I just think, friend, how can you live like that? How can you live under the weight of trying to please a holy and righteous God with enough prayers, another, enough scripture reading, enough this or that and trips to Mecca? I just don't see how it's possible. I can't please God for more than 10 minutes on any given day. My only hope in life and death is that I can't please God, but Jesus did please God, and that I'm going to be found in Jesus on the last day. So if you want to please God, or if even just this, just this morning, just now, you've begun to be a little curious about pleasing God, I would encourage you to listen to what He might be saying to you, even this morning. As I've talked about repentance, you've probably thought about something in your life that you need to repent of. Don't just try to push that thought away. Don't try to push it to the back of your head out of your conscious existence. Don't try to ignore it. It's the Lord trying to communicate with you, to call you, to consider your life, to consider the fruit of your life, and most likely to repent of the way you've been living your life. Consider the fact that you can please God. How incredible is that? I've been married over a decade now. I don't do a great job of pleasing my wife. I think my little girls love me more than anything in the world. I disappoint them almost daily. I can never fully please them. I'm a pastor of a church where I think most of the people here really love me. Really. And I think they're really glad that I'm here and that I'm their pastor. I can't please 50% of this congregation on a weekly basis. But I can please God. Incredible. Second thing that we see when we repent of our sins is that God is glorified. Going back to verse 8, it says that not only will he take pleasure in it, it also says, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. He might be glorified. Now, giving glory or being glorified or giving glory to God is kind of like providence. So it's one of those things that. You've heard probably, and you, you think you get the gist of it, but maybe you, can't, you couldn't explain it if I asked you to. Here's all we mean by giving glory to God. Making God look glorious, or making God look good. Giving glory to God is using our lips in our lives to communicate in every way that we can that God is who He says He is. That He is 
perfectly good, perfectly righteous, perfectly everything, loving, patient, kind, wrathful. He's amazing. He's marvelous. He is whatever superlative you want to use to describe the most ultimate being. That's what God is. And when we communicate with our lives and our lips a certain way, we can give glory to God. But what's so incredible about the Bible and the God of the Bible is that God is glorified in our obedience. God is glorified in our obedience. And it's because when we're obedient, we're, we're saying, yes, Lord, you are worthy. You're speaking to me, and your words aren't nothing to me. They're not meaningless. They're not useless. You know, if you spend much time on the Internet, you're accustomed to meaningless and useless words. You know, just go join Twitter. Spend 20 minutes on Twitter, full of it. <clears throat> Post a video on YouTube and look at some of the comments, things that people have to say to you. The world is full of people trying to communicate to us that we just say, you know what, your words don't matter. I don't care what you have to say. But when we are obedient and we are repentant, we're showing that God's words really do matter and that He really matters. And He's glorified in that. My Hope and prayer is that this church would be a church that tries to glorify God through these regular means, just regular means of obedience. You know, would it, would it be great if we could glorify God in some really amazing, big, theatrical, fantastic ways? Yeah, sure. But what does it matter if we have all that if we can't just walk in obedience? God says that he'll be glorified if we do. The thing that is unique about Christians is that they don't care about anything else in the world more than the glory of God. That's the central focus of our lives. That's what God cares most about, that's what Jesus cares most about, and that's what we care most about. Well, this is the number one way you can glorify Him, brothers and sisters, just walk in repentance. Number three, God is present. This may be the most fantastic promise, the most amazing promise that we see here that God says He will do if we are repentant if we walk with him in obedience. Look at verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. You know, every Sunday, ironically, except for this Sunday, we do something called a prayer of confession. I love that prayer because I think it's so thoroughly biblical. We as a people come together and we pray and we confess our sins. We confess the fact that we're not perfect. You know, all the bad things that people say about Christians, you know, the beautiful thing about being a Christian is you can just say, yeah, it's probably all true. But we just want to be honest about it. So we come together and we confess our sins to one another and to God. And then after we confess our sins, there's an assurance of pardon. An assurance of pardon. And in this assurance of pardon, somebody comes up and they read scripture. Something, some scripture that has to do with forgiveness. And this is not some Catholic absolution of sin. This is a reminder from God's word that if we really do repent of our sins, we really are forgiven. I think, I think here, God saying that he's going to be with his people, it kind of functions like an assurance of pardon. Right? In verse 12, you see that God's people are repentant. And then in verse 13, God assures them. He says, I'm with you. That is God's assurance to a repentant people. And I cannot think of a better assurance 
than the, that the fact that the God of the universe will be with me. Now, if you don't understand how incredible this is, it's, it really is, you know, Martin Lloyd-Jones said that the two most incredible words in all of the Bible are, but God. And when you see those two words, you can just breeze right past them. Well, I think you can do the same thing here with these three words. I am with you. You can read that and kind of breeze right past it to something else in the text. I think that's a big mistake. I think we only do that because we don't really understand who God is and we don't really understand who we are. God is holy. God is perfectly righteous. He is perfectly good. He is perfectly loving and perfectly kind. There is no stain in God. There is no impurity in God. There is no bad or not good thing in Him. He is everything that is good and right and true and beautiful in the universe. And you and I are not. We are often like the Israelites, impure. We don't care about God's presence. We don't listen to His voice when He speaks to us. We are full of stain. We are full of sin. Our hands are covered in blood. And there is no good reason that the God of the universe should come to be with us, a sinful people. If you don't see yourself as a sinful person, this whole point is probably lost on you. But I think if you come to understand yourself rightly, you'll see how amazing this is. The God of the universe says that he will be with us. Last week we read from 2 Thessalonians 1.9 where Paul talks about the consequences of our sin and God's active wrath on us once we die if we haven't trusted in Christ. And this is the way Paul describes it. He says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Away from the presence of the Lord. The punishment for us and our sins. And brothers and sisters, there is a punishment. Friends, people who aren't Christians, there is a punishment. One of the ways you can view the punishment is that you will finally see with your own flesh and blood eyes, you will see God as He truly is. He'll be as big and as glorious and as marvelous and as beautiful as you ever thought or hoped He could ever possibly be. And you will love Him and you will want to be with Him forever and ever and ever. And then he will shut you out of his presence. And that will be his wrath on you. But God is so patient and so kind. He hasn't done it yet. If you're sitting here this morning, God has not done to you what you deserve. He hasn't done to me what I deserve. He's been patient and kind with us. Rather than shutting us out from His presence forever, He did the opposite. He came down to be with us in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. God didn't shut us out from His presence. He came down and brought His presence to us. He lived in the muck, in the mire, in the filth of this fallen world out of love for us. And while He was here, He lived a perfect life. He lived the life that these Israelites couldn't live. 
He lived a life that we can't live, a life of perfect obedience, of perfect righteousness, of perfectly listening to the voice of his Father and obeying the words of his Father. And then he suffered. You remember earlier in the sermon where I talked about righteous suffering? Well, that's the kind of suffering that Jesus suffered, both as a man and also ultimately as our sacrifice on the cross where he paid the price for our sins. When Jesus went to the cross and when he suffered on the cross, the wrath of God, he was shut out from the presence of God. He was cut off from the Father. It should have been you and me. It should have been you. It should have been me. But it wasn't us. Jesus was cut off from the presence of the Father so that we wouldn't have to be. And now in light of his tremendous love and grace, God is still patiently calling all men everywhere back to himself. He's calling on all the people of the earth to consider their ways, consider the fruit of their ways, and then to repent of their ways. This is very much the language of the New Testament. As the apostles are going around preaching the gospel in Acts chapter 17, they say, He, God, is calling all men everywhere to do what? To repent. You know, it may surprise you that God's love is not unconditional. That's one of the things we just grow up hearing, right? Like, God's love is like the love of a parent. It's unconditional. That's just not true. See, Jesus had to die in order for him to love you. Not only that, but the condition for you to get to heaven is that you repent. And that you trust in him. It's not that you work harder. It's not that you do better. It's not that you spend the rest of your lives trying to make up for past transgressions. It's not that you be absolutely perfect down to the tiniest letter of the law. You can't do that. The condition is that you turn away from your sin and turn to Jesus. Some of you here this morning might be hiding from the presence of the Lord. He's offering you this, just like with the Israelites, He's, he's offering to be with you but you are hiding from him. You know, in the beginning of the Bible, there's a story all about this. In Genesis, Adam and Eve, our father and our mother, they sinned. And after they sinned, they hid from God in shame. Genesis 3 says that they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And maybe this morning you know, just like they knew. They knew that they were sinful. They knew that they messed up, and they knew that the holy and righteous judge of the universe was going to judge them for that, and so they tried to hide. And maybe this morning, even as I'm preaching, you, you feel that way. You feel like you need to hide as God's word does a work of conviction in your heart. Well, I, I want to encourage you to not do that. You've lived your whole life like that. Consider the fruit of your life up to this point and ask Ask yourself, is it worth it to keep running? Is it worth it to keep hiding? Has it produced the kind of fruit in your life that you had hoped that you would have? I promise you that if you turn to Jesus Christ, the fruit of repentance will be sweeter than you could ever possibly imagine. The psalmist describes, describes it like this. He says, In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
That is the fruit of repentance. Well, brothers and sisters, let's talk about Matt and Megan Mayfield. When I first met Matt Mayfield, he was really good at saying all the right things. You know, kind of everything you would want a pastor, as a pastor, you would want to hear somebody say. Never got a yes sir out of him, though. Still working on that. But as I got to know him more, I saw that his lifestyle wasn't really in line with his words. You know? If you looked at his life, you would see the fruit of a lifestyle that was obviously out of sync with God's will. But you also saw it was obvious that God was trying to communicate to him. I was concerned that as God and other people in his life were trying to communicate to him to get him to consider his ways and the fruit of his ways, that he just wasn't going to listen. Or that he would just pretend to listen, you know, that he would keep saying and trying to do all the right things until eventually, you know, things just kind of went haywire. But this morning, it's my great joy to tell you that uh, I think my brother Matt has listened to the voice of the Lord. I think he has considered his ways and the fruit of his ways, and he's found them wanting. I think that Matt has repented of his old life and has come to trust in Jesus Christ. And so we're going to baptize him. Matt, Megan, come on up. I first preached the gospel to Megan Mayfield when she was 14 years old. I'm not really sure how good of a job I did. I probably just sat her down in front of me and yelled at her for an hour. But many other people have poured into Megan's life since that day. And this is what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians. Some people plant the seed, some people water the seed, but ultimately God gives the growth. I saw Megan several times after I preached the gospel to her when she was 14. And I was not at all confident that there was any growth in her life, that she had actually turned from her ways. But as I've gotten to know her over the last year and done life with her and her husband, uh, it is my joy to confidently tell you that I think that she has turned away from her sin and turned to Jesus in faith. So, before we baptize them, we're going to have Matt and Megan share their testimony. They're not nervous at all, so you guys make it super easy for them to do it. Come on up to the podium, brother. up uh, going to church with good, God-loving parents that always tried to instill the importance of God in my life, but the gospel was never real to me. <laughs> I used to idolize sports rather than doing what is right with God and clinging to gospel principles. I went through high school unknowingly growing further away from the Lord. I went to college and got involved with drugs and alcohol, heavy partying, and never thinking religiously at all. I continued to turn to drugs and alcohol instead of Jesus Christ. I met my wife unexpectedly, and our relationship started off on a very backward and tumultuous foundation. Then one day, after a life-changing experience, Megan decided for the both of us that we needed something more, and we started going to church. This is when, this is when my wife took a stand and started being the religious leader of our household which is backwards in the eyes of the Lord, but I was so lost in the world that I didn't have any clue that I was supposed to be the spiritual head. This whole time, I'm thinking that I was a Christian because I never knew what the true meaning of being a Christian was. 
One day, Megan came to me and said that she had been saved and really started encouraging me to become the Christian that I thought I was. I started trying to live a moral life, even though nothing had changed in my heart, until I was asked at a membership interview for this church, when do you think that you were saved? And I really didn't have an answer to such an important question. It really bothered me and got me thinking, if I don't know when I was saved, I must have never truly been saved. So when I went home, I called Sean and expressed to him what I was going through. After we talked, he drove over to our house and read some scripture, and I repented of my sin and started trusting in Christ. Um, I haven't been perfect since then, but I know now that I hate my sin, and I am trying my hardest to follow Jesus Christ with all of my heart. And I now can say that I truly am saved. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Love you, man. You got it. Actually, hold it up to your mouth. Okay. Um, my whole life, I thought I was a Christian because I went to church. I was told if I just believed that Jesus came to die for my sins, then I would go to heaven. Well, I believe that, but statements like that sugarcoat what Christianity is all about. It's part of it, but not all of it. I know now that I wasn't a Christian at all. I was the world, living and breathing every desire that came to my mind without guilt. Earthly power, social status, addiction, abuse, anger, love of self and money were gifts the world freely gave me. I was always turning back to the darkness I was so familiar with, not understanding its interpretations of life are only shadows, always shifting. Its knowledge is untouched by the light. It seemed like I could never get away from it all. So something beautiful happened in the midst of all my destruction. Three years ago, God saved me in my desperation when I called out to him, and he loved me in the most hopeless places of my aching heart. God poured his grace upon me and gave, me some, gave someone who was so incredibly lost a loving home. Since that day, I've studied my Bible, I've prayed and worshipped every day, and strived to be in God's house with God's people. There have been a lot of trials in the course of three years, but with the Lord's power, I've defeated addictions and bad lifestyle habits. I have closed doors that I thought were untouchable, and I know now that true wisdom and knowledge comes from only God. On another note, the definition of a testimony is evidence or proof provided by the existence or appearance of something. No one can look at my life and say that the existence of God isn't present in my life story. I didn't change on my own. The only reason I am who I am today is because of the blood of Jesus and the power of God. My life is evidence of the Father and his mercy. My life is proof that our Savior still lives and loves imperfect people like me. So who am I now? I can state the obvious. I'm a devoted wife, mother, family member, church member, friend. But above all, I'm a Christian, loving this tiny church full of God's people. We'll sing a song and get ready for baptism. Love the enthusiasm. Make sure we applaud after they get baptized as well. <laughs> 